Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Chapel Hill. We're glad that you can join us in person today, and we're glad for those who are joining us online as well. Uh, We are in the current teaching series, More Than Conquerors, in the book of Revelation. And we are now coming to the end of the book of Revelation. And at this point in John's vision, we are seeing the consequences of God's final judgment. And in today's passage, we see a powerful vision of Jesus as the almighty judge who will deliver final judgment to bring sin, Satan, and this world into justice. And needless to say that this is not a popular concept. If you go to a bookstore and you go through the spiritual section, you'll see titles like The Journey of Your Soul or Chicken Soup for Your Soul. I've yet to see a great new bestseller titled Judgment Day for Your Soul. Nobody wants to hear about it. But despite how extremely unpopular judgment is, I would like to show you this morning that God's judgment in the gospel, which is the Christian view of Judgment Day from the Bible, is actually really good news for us today. And so we're going to start to see what the text says about Jesus as the judge and show how the Bible is actually much more nuanced than perhaps what the average person has an idea of God's judgment, to then see how God's judgment can actually be really good news for us today. And in this vision of Jesus in chapter 19, what we see is four titles and four descriptions of Jesus. We see four titles of Jesus and four descriptions about Jesus. In chapter 19, verse 11, we read, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Faithful and True is Jesus' first title. Jesus is called Faithful because he reigns faithful in obedience to God in a hostile world, in a world that had persecuted him. He remained faithful to God's mission, to his calling. And Jesus is true in his righteousness and in his judgment. He's a righteous king and judge who rules in righteousness and judges justly. His judgment is right and just. It means that in his calling to be judge, he is faithful to God in his calling and he's true in his justice. And what that means is that God's judgment, judgment doesn't show us a God who is angry, cranky, and spiteful. His judgment shows us that he's actually righteous and faithful. And that can be a good and comforting thing for our souls. Because when God promises to bring all evils to an end, to bring all wrongdoings to justice in this world, to bring the effects of sin to a complete end, well, God is faithful and true to his promise on that. And that can be a great comfort for our souls. The second title we read in verse 12 is written on him, and he has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows, we read in verse 13. And so what that means for us is that we currently don't know everything about Jesus. And the point for us in relation to judgment is that we have limited information and knowledge to access 
and judge things. But God has full information and full knowledge to judge things rightly. It's like our saying with the wisdom of hindsight. So, for example, when a government makes public confidential archives free and publicly known about significant decisions and events in the past, that only then would we understand what had happened in a trial in the past or what had happened in a war in the past. Only then would we have the wisdom of hindsight. Or, for example, perhaps you might be in situations that you have gone through in person, and at the time it was confusing, it made no sense, but you realize only a few years later, after then, with a bit more perhaps self-awareness, a bit more wisdom gained from experience, that you're like, aha, I'm able to make more sense of what had happened in the past. Well, it's kind of like that with God. We are not fully aware and knowledgeable about people and situations in the present, but God is. We will gain the wisdom of hindsight when Jesus reveals his hidden name, when he's revealing the hidden knowledge about the world, when we see him when he returns. But in the meantime, we trust that Jesus is faithful and true, and that is supported by his full awareness and knowledge of our world. Jesus' third title is the Word of God. The Word of God is a way of saying God reveals, the way that God reveals himself to us. When you were growing up, you might have been encouraged to have a pen pal. I don't know if pen pal still exists today, but growing up, I was encouraged to have a pen pal. And if you ever had a pen pal, you would have written letters asking your pen pal to share some details about what they're like, where they're living, and perhaps even ask if they could share a photo of themselves. Well, if you wrote to God as your pen pal, asking him to share some details about what he is like, well, God's reply is by sending his son, Jesus, to show us what he is like. And so in Jesus, we see that God asks little children to come to him. In Jesus, we see that God heals those who are unclean. In Jesus, we see that God tells the Pharisees, woe to you. In Jesus, we see that God offers us mercy and forgiveness. And in Jesus, we see that God wages war against evil and he conquers over sin and over his enemies. And so now look at his last name on verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This name tells us that Jesus is the kingliest of kings, the lordliest of lords. There is no higher ruler or power than him. No one can trump Jesus. And he is sitting on a white horse, we read, at the end of history, signifying to us that he is a conquering king, a righteous judge, and he defeats evil and he destroys the wicked. So those are the four titles of Jesus. Now let's look at the four descriptions of Christ. First, his eyes, verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes are pure. They are piercing. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. Second description is his head. His head has many thorn, uh, crowns, fitting for a king. 
He is majestic. He is authoritative. He has power. The third description is his robe. Verse 13, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Why blood? Well, the imagery is of Jesus defeating his enemies. It's imagery of Jesus being victorious over his enemies of sin, Satan, and an idolatrous world. Now, at this point, you might be finding this image of God being perhaps alluding to violence and blood a bit uncomfortable. Perhaps you're a person that values nonviolence, peaceful means. But the thing is, and you might find that perhaps an angry and violent God would actually induce his people to be violent and aggressive. But that's a misconception. Because Miroslav Volf, a philosophy and theologian, writes this. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He goes on to say, my thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but, but he goes on to help us imagine. He says, imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and cities have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have their throats slit. And he tries to evoke an imagination for us and say, you point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? Volf says this, the only means prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. Do you get his logic? He's saying, if you want a society that is nonviolent, that doesn't encourage aggressive behavior, His thesis is saying, well, the only thing that would make us to be that kind of people is to know that God will bring justice in the end, that God will take the sword and do that rightly and justly so we don't have to. And he goes on to challenge the idea that God is not a judging God, a punishing God. He's challenging us that that could only come with the comforts of suburbia, of Western society, where our main concerns or things that makes us anxious is um, our schedule during the week or what to do on the weekend or what happens when a storm comes, what shall we do with the washing. But he's saying, imagine the rest of the world. The rest of the world aren't concerned about that. The rest of the world, particularly in places where Miroslav Volf grew up in, in Eastern Europe, war-torn countries, Vengeance is real. Injustice is real. And for them, it is of great comfort and good news that God would take up the sword to bring justice on earth. 
The fourth description is his mouth, verse 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. The sword is the gospel message of Jesus, which has the power to save God's people, but also the power to judge people. The gospel has the power to bring down the humble, down to repentance and faith, and it also has the power to bring down the proud to judgment and punishment. You see, the gospel has the power to gather people. Look at the gathering in verse 17. Very graphic. Come, gather together for a great supper of God, so that they may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. This is a gruesome image, yes. But it's a gruesome parody of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because earlier in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, if you go back to that, God invites us to join in the wedding supper of the Lamb. By trusting in Jesus, there will be great joy in being the church, the bride of Christ. But if you reject that first invitation, then you'll be gathered for a completely different kind of supper where there will be no joy. And chapter 20 goes on to show Jesus conquering the beast, all the idolatrous power and rulers in this world. He will go on condemning the beast to eternal punishment. Then Jesus conquers Satan, condemning Satan to eternal punishment. And finally, all mankind comes before the throne of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. So in this vision of Jesus, we see by his titles that Jesus is the righteous king, the just judge who reveals the justice of God. And we see by his description that Jesus is mighty, forceful, and he'd even say perhaps brutal in his judgment. So how can we reconcile his titles with his descriptions? Because when we see this vision of his titles and descriptions together, it's really hard for us to put it together, isn't it? The only way we can reconcile Jesus' character as the righteous judge and Jesus' actions of his brutal judgment is to see how serious and terrible sin actually is. Because that is the only way that we can equate Jesus' character as the righteous judge with his actions of brutal judgment is to understand that we've taken sin way too lightly. The effects of sin are so damaging and are so far-reaching that this image is saying that rightly deserves eternal condemnation. So how can God's judgment be good news? Well, God's righteous judgment sin may not feel like good news for you personally, but it is good news for our world. I get that you don't want to be judged because, look, I don't want to be judged. But I know that you'll be lying if you don't want the world to be judged. I get that you don't want your issues being thought about and talked about. But I know that you totally want the world's issues, particularly at the moment, to be thought about and talked about. And because some of you experience real injustice. 
or you feel very strongly about injustice because perhaps some of you have experienced the brokenness of this world. Some of you perhaps have experienced abuse or know of it very directly. And so for me, I find it really good news that when Jesus returns as king and judge, justice will be done. Because I find the systematic injustice in our culture, in our world, to be like a Gordian knot. If you don't know what it looks like, this is an illustration. I know George would know exactly what a Gordian knot is. Because when you think of injustice like a Gordian knot, that any time anyone tries to unravel it, it just opens and reveals a deeper and worse knot. And even talking about the knot can make it really hurtful for some of you who perhaps have been bound up and tied up in the knot of injustice. Because as I talk about the issues of this world with my wife Amy, we find it very perplexing and deeply distressing about the knots of injustice, which seems impossible to unravel. And so I found it profoundly encouraging when Jesus comes as king and judge, justice will be done once and for all. Jesus will bring justice and make all things right, not according to my standard and my wisdom and my knowledge, but according to God's standard, God's knowledge and God's wisdom. The whole world will be made right and perfect again. And this is really good news for our world. And I hope you do too. But how can God's judgment be also good news for you personally here today? I can see how you're probably here thinking, I can see how this vision in chapter 19 as Christ the judge be good news for the world, for justice to be finally done. But where in this passage is there good news for me? When I know the seriousness of my own sin and my due punishment. Well, there is one little detail. Notice that Jesus' robe was dipped in blood. But we read it that it was already dipped in blood before the war and battle against sin and Satan began. So we have to ask ourselves, if the war hasn't started, if Jesus hasn't started the battle, where did the blood come from? Well, do you see that Jesus is not portrayed here as this bigger, badder guy who violently beats up other bad guys? No, no, no. Jesus comes as the faithful and true king who drags his robe not through the blood of his enemies, but his robe is soaked by his own blood so that his enemies might become his family. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death by shedding his own blood. By dying to take the righteous penalty for our sin. By dying to take our punishment. And at the cross, God's judgment fell on Jesus, brutally on Jesus, so that we could be forgiven by trusting in his brutal death for us. And so that means that if you put your faith in Jesus, you have already had your judgment day. 
For there to be justice in the world, there has to be a judgment day. You can't get rid of judgment day if you want a perfect injustice to reign in this world. And the good news is that the judgment day can be in your past. Because at the cross, Jesus was the judge who left the stand to come down into the dock. Jesus is the one who judges and says, look, I'm going to come down into your place to be the one being judged, and I'm going to receive the rod. Jesus was punished for you. He took everything that you deserved. See, a Christian is not a good person. A Christian is not a person who's done good enough in order to not receive God's judgment. No, a Christian is someone who is sinful. A Christian is someone who is deserving of God's judgment. But Jesus has already taken their punishment. A Christian is simply someone who has already had their judgment day by trusting that Jesus has taken the punishment of their sin, who has been accepted into God's family, not by what they've done, but by what God has done in Jesus, whose name is written in the book of the Lamb, who lives eternally with God. You see, there must be a judgment day. And you can either live with God's judgment before you, or in Christ you can live with God's judgment behind you. That is the good news of the gospel for you personally. The only judge who was judged for you is Jesus Christ. So accept him, turn to him, put your faith in him, and he will be your good news, your salvation. And he will also be your hope when he comes again as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings, who will wipe away every tear and there will be evil no more. The good news for the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for seeing the titles and the descriptions of Jesus who shows us the reality of what Jesus is like as the true king and the faithful judge. Father, we long for the day, for sickness, illness, disease to be alleviated from this world. Father, we long for the day where corrupt rulers and leaders will no longer reign over our lives no more. Father, we long for the day, for the pollution, exploitation of our fine earth to end. We long for the day where every tear will be wiped away. We long for the day for every mankind to be made right. We long for the day for creation to be healed and restored, for you to bring your justice. But Father, we thank you that you come already on earth. You've come to us before, which is the story of Christmas. The first time you came, you came not to judge, 
but to offer your life as a forgiveness for our sins. And so, Father, we live between two judgment days. May we put our faith in Christ so that judgment day can be behind us, so that we can feast in the wedding supper of the Lamb with you eternally. And we pray earnestly and sincerely for our friends, family, and the many peoples of this earth that they would accept that judgment day is necessary. But judgment day can be behind us by the blood of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.